And uh, while you're doing that, um, or after I give you a moment to do that, we'll pray and we'll get started. No thanks, I'm fasting. That's awesome, Joel. Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you. Uh, We're grateful. We are always grateful, probably not as much as we should be, but you give us all things. You do everything that is good. And we acknowledge you. We have been doing that this morning. We're going to do it now through your word. Um, And we readily admit, Lord, we're not all that we should be. Um, I know there's more you want to do in our lives through your Holy Spirit to make us more like our wonderful Savior. So I pray that the next 40 minutes or so will, uh, that you will use that to that end, um, that you would speak to us, that you would uh, bring conviction to us, that you would bring encouragement to us, uh, that you would do what you desire to do in each heart and in this group of people, in Christ's name, amen. I appreciated Chris, right? Awesome, awesome bro. And I appreciated uh, what you were sharing um, about honoring, you know, how we should honor the right things, right people at the right times. Um, Yeah, that story from the gospel about all the Pharisees could do was point out that a guy was carrying his stretcher, basically, and miss the whole point. And uh, among other things, that's pretty much hypocritical, you know, for a believer in Yahweh, the God of Israel at that time, uh, the God of Abraham and Isaac, the God of King David and Solomon, to just focus on that and not even, and they said, who was it who told you to carry your bed? It wasn't, who was it who healed you? Who was it who did this amazing miracle? It was, who was it who broke our interpretation of the law? And uh, we've been looking in chapter 6 about hypocrisy. And um, and hypocrisy isn't failing to live up to the standard you desire to live up to. That's not hypocrisy. That's kind of being human, actually, I think. Hypocrisy at least in our context here, is trying to be seen by everybody else as something that you're really not. You know, that you have a standard that you profess to live by, but you don't really intend or strive to live by. I mean, we all fail. That's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is choosing to live on a completely different level and trying to live in a way that... uh, people would esteem, you know, or they would look up to us and admire, but that's not what's in our heart. A couple of evidences of hypocrisy just lately, I was thinking, you know, sports teams, I tend to follow sports somewhat, the NBA more than the rest. Um, In in recent times, in, in sports teams in the NFL a while back, one of the coaches, the Raiders coach, basically got in trouble and got discharged, fired, um, because he was hypocritical, or at least appeared to be, because while the league is trying to make advancements in things like ending racism, the Raiders coach was pretty much a racist. 
um, hypocrisy. That didn't cut it, so they had to part ways. Um, and in the basketball front, I mean, even right now, there's a, some investigations going on about either owners or executives leading franchises who are hypocritical. They're supposed to live and administer and work on a certain level, but they actually are doing something very different. Hypocrisy. Um, so that's uh, where we're at. If you have your bulletin insert, um, I have the text that we're going to look at today. It's Matthew 6, 16 through 18. Um, but just a quick recap of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, this new king who arrives on the scene and he's preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. This kingdom that the Israelites have been looking forward to, waiting for, for praying earnestly, frequently fasting even, wanting this kingdom, this rule of God to come. And Jesus comes and he says, repent for the kingdom is at hand. It's within reach. And that's the whole Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And he basically says there's a new kingdom, there are new rules, there are new things that apply, and there's a new king, which is him. Um, so there's all these new things. Um, there's a new king, there's a new kingdom, there's a new way of living. If you've read through it recently, I really hope you've been challenged by something in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and I would even say, let me just ask you a kind of a heart-to-heart, -heart, when was the last time God changed the way you believe? When was the last time he did that? Because if God has not challenged and changed the way you believe, either you believe perfectly on all points, or you're not really pursuing your growth as a believer in Christ. And I don't think anybody scores number one, right? I don't think anybody, any of us, I will readily admit, I do not believe perfectly correctly on all points. And so that's my challenge to you is when was the last time you took a step back, you looked at the word. I'm not talking about abandoning solid doctrine. I'm talking about looking in the word and being challenged and thinking, you know, maybe I had the wrong assumptions about this. And then getting into the word like Chris was doing, like he told us he was doing. And, re and saying, you know what? I, I, think, I think maybe I was wrong in this point. Because that's why Spencer preaches when he's preaching when he's not rehabbing, which, you know, we're glad you're here, by the way. I mean, that's why we preach. That's why we get up and teach the Word, is to challenge. And that's why we study, right? So that God will speak to us through the Word. So if you're not kind of always evaluating what is it you believe and where might your belief in some way, I'm not talking major doctrines, hopefully you got that correct, but you wouldn't be growing if you're not reevaluating what you believe based on the text of Scripture. And the whole Sermon on the Mount was a mind blower for that, those people. They had all of the Old Testament, most of the Bible, and Jesus came and blew their minds on this whole new thing for the kingdom, which he also said is the fulfillment of all that they had, all of the Old Testament.
So a new way of living. Uh, the Beatitudes flip the narrative, so to speak, if you're filling in these blanks. Um, narrative is kind of a trendy word. I thought I'd put it in there. You know, maybe somebody might be impressed by me using that word. If not, Brad's not. So <laughs> it's like, okay, well, I tried. But he flips the narrative. He flips the story in, in, the, in the Beatitudes, right? And he says, blessed. And then he picks a descriptor of a person which doesn't seem blessed. Blessed are they impoverished in their spirit, for they have the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn. Nobody thinks mourning people, broken people, are blessed, right? But he's saying that you're blessed. You're, in a sense, happy in a godly, biblical sense for those who mourn. Blessed, and, and I won't read them all, but if you hunger and thirst for right, righteousness, you will be satisfied. Uh, if you're merciful, if you give mercy, if you offer mercy, you will receive mercy. And he goes through all of that, and it, it's just completely turning everything around. He goes on through Matthew chapter 5. It's about a people and a purpose. The people are the kingdom people. Not the Israelites by birth. Not the Americans. Not the Italians. It's the people in the kingdom. That's what it's all about. And they have a purpose, right? In, in 5, 13, and 16, their purpose to be the light of the world, to be the salt of the earth. They have a purpose, then we went through six correlations where Jesus said, you've heard it said, or you've heard it taught. For instance, what Chris shared today. He could have said, you've heard it said you can never carry a cot that you've lived on for 38 years or whatever on the Sabbath. But I say to you, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, and the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, right? He would have said that or something similar in that context. Yeah, so the six correlations there for living in the kingdom, being in the kingdom. And then he finishes the chapter 5 with, be perfect. Man, you talk about a high standard, right? Be perfect. Be perfect. And I will say right now, we must be perfect. Now, how do I reconcile that with hypocrisy isn't failing because we all fail, right? I mean, how does, what am I saying? How do I reconcile Jesus saying be perfect? Well, the requirement to be righteous before God is to be perfect. And so you and I can, as you were sharing, we can stand in our own righteousness, perfect before God and have a right relationship with him, which as you aptly pointed out, only one person has ever done. Or we can stand effectively behind him, right? And be perfect. And so this is all what Jesus is teaching here. It's like, you want to be righteous before God, you must be perfect. The standard for God is so high, it's unreachable. Which is why he sends his son, who is perfect, who lives the perfect life. Dies as the perfect sacrifice to restore us by faith in a right relationship with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Creator of all. That's what he says. And then we talked about the triple vaccine against hypocrisy. The first part of chapter 6 is all about hypocrisy. And he picks three things. Pray, give, 
and fast. And fast is the one we're going to look at today. And, and if you've been here for the last few times that I've taught, what is the key thing that Jesus said will help prevent you from being a hypocrite in regard to these three things? What does he say? This is a real question. Go on. In secret. In secret. Yeah, right? He says, don't do your righteousness, your acts of righteousness before others. 6.1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Okay, that's hypocrisy. For he says, then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, don't sound trumpets and all this. Do it in secret. And we discussed that you don't have to do everything in secret. It's doing it in secret is the perfect preventative from falling into hypocrisy. And I even encourage that you always do some things in secret. It's just good discipline. So you can give to the poor. This wasn't giving to the local church. Giving to the poor, the needy. And he says, don't do it to be impress everybody. That'd be kind of like me saying, Chris, you know, I was touched by that story, and I'm going to write out a check when church is over for $100, and you can give it to that family. Okay, I would be doing all of that to be seen by others. But it's possible, if that family is in need, and it sounds like they are, it's possible that you could give in secret to them, and you could just approach Chris and say, hey, you know, I was touched by that story. And you know what? I'd like to do something to help them. And if it's between you and Chris, that'd be awesome, I think. That's just my little thing I'm sneaking in there. Um, yeah, and then giving. So, so praying, don't pray in public to be showing off. Don't give in public to be showing off. And now fasting. This is where we're at. Why in secret? Because if you don't do it in secret, he's, Jesus says you have your reward right now. But if you do things in secret where it's only between you and God, God will reward you. Amen. Now, I would caution you, you know, God's not an accountant. You, you can't say, okay, Lord, I gave 10 bucks in secret, so, you know. And in fact, your Bible says, you know, you give back a hundredfold, so, you know, he looks at the heart, right? We, we understand that. So this is a preventative from us becoming hypocrites or getting too concerned what people think of us as individuals. So that's why in secret. Everything doesn't have to be done in secret. And then now we get to uh, what we're at today, fasting. Okay, defined. This is the definition I'm using for fasting. To abstain from all or some kinds of food or drink, especially as religious observance. That's kind of a generic secular definition. Um, biblical fasting is different than kind of the, the overall worldly views on fasting, which is wide open, could be anything. Um, there's a guy that I used to see at work at different times, and we talked one time, I offered him something, we were having, I don't know, cake or something. He goes, oh no, I'm fasting. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Tell me about that. Why are you fasting? He goes, well, I'm doing intermittent fasting. Some of you heard of that? Yeah, it's like a metabolic thing, so it kind of like always keeps your metabolism, you know, on edge, I guess. 
so that it's a weight loss, basically, thing. And a lot of fasting has to do with health, weight loss, feeling better. I mean, it could be a whole bunch of things. Some fasting is just based on self-discipline, right? I mean, there are technology fasts, screen time fasts. I mean, there's all kinds of fasts. They're not necessarily wrong. In fact, they can be really good for developing personal discipline. But that's not a biblical fast. In the Bible, there's only one fast that's required or was required in the scriptures. And that was on the Day of Atonement. So it's Old Testament nation Israel, before the perfect Lamb of God came, the perfect sacrifice for sin, and they were required to fast. That is the only fast that's mandated in the scriptures. So when you get to the New Testament and people say, well, I fast twice a week. It's like, well, that's really cool, I guess. But that's not really a spiritual mandate. Now, you can fast more or different than that for spiritual purposes, for biblical purposes, which we'll talk about. But understand that it's, first of all, voluntary. Because only the Day of Atonement is the only biblically required fast. Now, there were kings and ruling authorities who would require a fast and tell everybody, you know, tear your garment, put ashes on your head, we're going to fast but it's not required in the scriptures. Um, okay, biblical examples. And I'm going to read them. I have some of them there. Uh, the first one is David in 1 Samuel. Actually, that's 2 Samuel. That's my typo, sorry. 2 Samuel twelve sixteen, And I will read from it here. If you know your Bible... King David, after he's the king and he's settled in, he has all the power and kind of is doing whatever he wants and his spiritual life kind of cools off, right? We can all be like that, whether it's the nation and they appeal to God and then God blesses them and everything's going good and their spiritual hunger kind of cools or me individually, right? Oh God, help me. Something's wrong. You know, I, got, I lost my job. I have cancer. I have this or that or whatever it is. God, help me. And God answers. And then it's easy if we don't maintain a discipline for our spiritual hunger and need to kind of cool off. Well, that's what happened with King David. And so then he's kind of, you know, twiddling his thumbs. He's not out fighting the wars like he's supposed to be. And he starts looking around and he notices a very beautiful woman in his proximity and he decides hey man I'm the king I do what I want I'll take her and if you know the word he then arranges she gets pregnant and he arranges the death murder of her husband which was one of his best most, most faithful warriors and likely a bunch of others at the same time and then he takes her into his household to, to uh, have her be one of his wives all this to hide up the fact that he had committed adultery and got her pregnant. And so she's now living with him. And the prophet shows up. Parenthesis, nothing is hidden in God's sight, right? You can be the king. 
Nothing is hidden in God's sight. Everything is like laid naked and bare before him to whom we must give account. And so the prophet shows up and says, hey, David, here's the deal. And he tells him this story. And David's like, that guy should be toast. And the prophet says, you're that guy. And David realizes he's busted, that God knows his secret, etc., etc. So the baby who has been born is going to die. Now, if you think in a lot of humanistic kind of approaches to the scripture, that's not going to make any sense to you at all. So I would encourage you to be a student of the word, understand how God works, understand who God is. And so the baby's going to die, and David is fasting and praying and laying on the floor, and then the baby dies. And then he gets up, it's like, okay, my fast is over. So that's one case of fasting. Uh, the next one is the Ninevites in Jonah chapter 3. I love that story. You love it? Yeah, it's awesome. Jonah the prophet reluctantly goes to this warrior city who's on the verge of taking over the known world. And he says, you guys are in trouble and God is mad at you and you're going down. And understandably, he was reluctant to go do that. I think I probably would have been too. Because he's thinking, man, those guys are tough. It's like they'll probably impale me on a stake and set fire to me. But you know the story of Jonah. It's three or four chapters. Three, I think. Uh, read it. So he obeys God, he goes in, he preaches, God is judging this city, this nation, he is bringing judgment. And shocker, the people believe. They believe, and they tear their clothes, and they call for a fast. Okay, other examples. Matthew, the Lord himself in Matthew chapter 4. So before he's, or as he's being driven or sent by the Spirit into the wilderness expressly for the purpose of being tested because God's sacrifice must be proven, right? He's got to be proven and not just proven to be the perfect man, human in the human context. He must be proven in the spiritual context. So he must resist every temptation that the evil one can put against him. So he's fasting, uh, fast for 40 days. Uh, the early church in Acts chapter 13, um, they were fasting and praying. Um, I will look at that one. Now there were in the church at Antioch, this is Antioch in Syria, I believe, not Antioch in what we now, is, now know as Turkey, um, Always remember, when you read the Bible, there are names and place names, and they overlap, and it, sometimes it can get confusing. Um, there were in this church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. I so love how God puts stuff in yeah. his word. Isn't that awesome? He was a lifelong friend of Herod. I mean, it's like, I wonder how many times he tried to, like, whatever. Um, yeah, and Saul. And it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, so the Holy Spirit early in the days of the church, he's speaking through these prophets to the church, which by the way is how we get the New Testament. He's speaking and he says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their, laid their hands on them and sent them off. 
So they're already fasting and praying and worshiping. They're focusing on God. They're denying themselves their uh, fleshly desires of hunger, among other things. And they're focusing on God. And God shows up. It's the cliche that we like to use now. God is there and he speaks. And he says, do this, send these guys, because God is God. And he knows where Saul and Barnabas are going, and he knows what's going to happen, and he knows we're going to get the book of Acts, especially the second half, and he knows Paul's going to write much of the New Testament, and he knows the gospel's going to cross over into Europe, and he knows eventually, 2,000 years later, we're going to be sitting here in Anchorage talking about this very thing. He knows that then. Because, and he speaks to them and works in them because they're fasting and praying. They're focusing on him. They're not distracted by all the things that go on in life, whether they're legitimate, worthy things, or whether they're foolish, trinket kind of things. We struggle with that. So they're fasting and praying. The Spirit says, set them apart for the work which I have. And then they fast and pray again and lay hands on them and send them off. Okay, so these are just examples of fasting and praying. Um, and then there's ways of doing it wrong. In Matthew 6, obviously the way to do it wrong is to do it to be seen by everybody. So that would be like, you know what? Uh, I'm struggling with something. I'm just going to tell you and I'm going to fast the next couple days over it. You know, or I'll be fasting all through next week and I show up next week and I haven't shaved and I haven't washed and I'm wearing dirty old wrinkled clothes that I've slept in all week. You, you know what I mean? That's what they did. I mean, that sounds ridiculous to us, but that's what they did. They'd be like, oh, Greg's really, man, he's seeking the Lord. You know, he's fasting and kind of smells a little too, but, you know, but, but wow. Well, that's not how we do it, Right. Now, there are times when a church calls for a fast and fasting and prayer. But understand, it's voluntary. It's something that each individual believer on this side of the cross must decide to do. And it's accompanied by other things. You can just fast for health reasons or just to build your personal self-discipline. Those are fine. But a biblical fast is always accompanied by something else. Usually like a you're heartbroken or you're grieving or there's some other thing and it's accompanied with prayer and seeking God. As I have the definition here, um, the goal, I'm going to that if you have that there, Joel. Well, I think it's in your handout. The goal is to humble oneself before God. All faith comes down to me and him. This is kind of a blessing, it can be an encouragement, it can also be deceiving, it can be a whole bunch of things. But if my faith isn't right between me and him, it's not right. If your faith isn't right, when it's just you and him, fix it. It needs to be fixed. Well, no, that ain't cool. He's taking a picture. Of what's behind you. Okay, you want me to get out of <laughs> oh, you don't have one? No. Well, just share. You're right. No, it's totally cool anyway. I, you're fine. We know. We're good. Um, okay. So the goal is to humble oneself before God and seek his face in prayer. That's kind of Christian-ish 
Bible kind of talk, but it means to seek God. Not that you're actually going to see his face. To seek his face in prayer, an outward act that expresses an inward humility toward God. So humility, being humble, being broken, having a need, being insufficient in yourself. If you kind of want to try to understand what the whole thing about prayer and fasting is really supposed to be like, Turn on your TV if you have one. Watch some of the commercials during a sporting event and see all those people, those kids and the athletes and stuff, and their whole self-sufficient, I can do it all, I'm going to conquer the world, it's all about me. And then just imagine, what's the complete opposite of what I just saw? Right? Because that's the thing right now to teach people confidence. So the pendulum is swung. It's like, you know, tell people they can do anything and everything. It can be everything. Not always realistic. So, humility. Okay, what is it not? It's not a hunger strike, but a humility statement. Okay? There, I knew a guy many, many years ago who went on a hunger strike because the girl he was dating and he wanted to marry broke up with him. Well, he was probably broken before God, but it's like, you know, if... if if you're going to like play chicken with God, go on a hunger strike until he relents and gives you what you want, I'm going to tell you who's going to lose every single time. Right? Amen. You can't force him. <laughs> you cannot force him to do something. He's God. He's the sovereign of the universe. He makes it all. And our faith is supposed to bring us to the point where we realize, and he is good. Even in the middle of a really hard time that leads me to prayer and fasting and supplication, it's like, Lord, you've got to help us in this. I still know he's good because that's who he is, and he does not change. He does not change. There is no shifting shadow, right? That's what that means. It's the pure light of the match or the candle or whatever it was. I can't remember now. Yeah, there's no flickering with God. There's no shifting shadows. It's not like, you know, one of those smelly candles that you burn this time of year that smells like a pine tree and after enough wax melts, then the thing's flickering and it's trying to drown itself in melted wax, right? That ain't God. He's more constant than the sun. The sun has sunspots and does weird things, you know. There's no changing in him. And that's why it's perfectly consistent for a believer to pray and fast and say, God, we need you. I need you. With one hand, and the other hand, I know you are good, and your ways are good. We just don't see it all, and that's part of our faith. Okay. So it's not a hunger strike, it's a humility statement. Um, when should I, or when should I not fast? Uh, I think I skipped the part, the word can mean one who is empty, and it's the biblical word, and it's tied directly to that. But I would think about one who's empty, one who's spiritually poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay, so I came up with this checklist. Uh, Do you have a need you can't meet or a problem you can't fix? King David had a problem he couldn't fix. The baby was going to die. The prophet had told him that. When the prophet speaks, if it's a true prophet of God, their word is reliable. And David knew that. He also was a prophet. He couldn't fix it. 
he, you know, he could have taken the baby to every doctor in the kingdom if whatever they had, I don't know, but he couldn't fix it. So if you have a problem, a need that you can't meet, or a problem you can't fix, okay, you may think about praying and fasting. Do you desire to focus more on him and less on you? I don't mean like, yes, we all do. I mean like, are you serious about it? Do you want to focus more on him in your life? Do you want to say, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me? Do you want God to change your situation? Remember I started off, by, when was the last time he changed how you thought or you know, what you believe? Not so much doctrinally. But do you believe that God is right there and he desires to radically use you in a powerful way? Somebody say yes. <laughs> yeah. We're kingdom people in the kingdom. We have the king and we have the spirit of God to do his work. I absolutely believe he wants to radically use every one of us in a powerful way that changes eternity, if I can say it that way, to reach the world. Now, maybe I'm a dreamer. But as the song goes, but I'm not the only one. <laughs> right, Spencer? Yeah, he wants to dramatically change us and use us for things in ways that you would never even imagine. I really, truly believe that. Number three, are you concerned about the society you live in and the problems we are facing? Hello. <laughs> right? Nineveh. Forty more days and this place is ashes, effectively. And the whole city calls a fast. I, it, the way my Bible reads, I think the king would kind of got on board with it after it was more the grassroots kind of movement. And the whole city is fasting and praying. Yeah, are you faced, are you concerned? Are you faced with problems? Blessed are those who mourn, those who mourn over sin. I mourn over my sin, my propensity to sin. But I also mourn over the other sins of others, the sin of our society. I mean, do you mourn over the millions of lives that are lost through abortion? Do you mourn over the fact that we're in a land with a government that can't figure out which is their right hand and their left hand, and even the church half the time doesn't know what they're doing? I mean, I talked to a guy this past week. I said, you know, I, I try to... When I look at a problem, I try to think, what's the opportunity for the kingdom? On the southern border, if there's thousands or millions of undocumented aliens coming into the United States, do you focus on the financial ramifications of that? Or do you say, God, you're bringing us hundreds of thousands of people that we can reach for the kingdom that we otherwise would not have been able to reach? That's how we should think. And, you know, the tax thing, well, that's a bummer. But, you know, if our taxes got to go up or people are going to speak a different language in the grocery store or whatever, isn't that price worth the people of God to pay to reach the unreached? You follow me? Now, I know this is not real popular. I'm saying you got to agree with me on this. But start thinking different. Let God change the way you think about the kingdom. Is your church or fellowship facing an important spiritual decision or action? How's your church doing? If it's 
kind of working through some difficult situations, this might be a time for you to pray and fast. That's what they did in Acts. That's what they did in Acts. And then you can go from, ah, Lord, this is all messed up. I don't even know what's going on. To, like the disciples early in the book of Acts, okay, Lord, they threw us in jail. They beat us up. They threatened us if we preach anymore. We have one request. Give us boldness to do it more. Right? That's what they did. Right? I remember you preached on that. It's like, give us boldness to do it even more. That's a kingdom prayer. All right. So now my, um, my last thing here, because clock just ran out. Prayerfully consider three secret things. By secret things, I mean these three things. Giving, praying, fasting. Okay? Prayerfully consider those three things. And whichever of the three is the easiest kind of for you to do, okay, cross that one off, and now you're left with the two. All right? Can we do that? So you're left with two. And, and write a specific plan on how you're going to implement that. I mean in the secret part. I don't, don't just only pray in secret or only give in secret. But you pick one of those three prayerfully and write out a specific plan. Now, you don't have to, or this doesn't have to go any farther than right now. But you probably won't change if you don't. Because that's what the Christian life is about, is growing, changing, learning the word, conforming the way we live to the glory of Christ. So that's my final word. Thank you, Lord. We thank you. You're good. You do good stuff, even in the midst of the hardest things and times. You do really good things, and that just keeps us going. We are grateful. We ask your blessing on this day, um, on the meal next door, the rest of today, um, and in the coming week. God, I pray that you challenge us, that you change us, that you glorify yourself through us in huge ways or even seemingly insignificant ways. To you be the glory in Christ's name. Amen.